And if you have your Bibles, you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. We're moving into a new section in the Gospel of Matthew. And what we see, Matthew's Gospel is a ministry manual. It's a discipleship manual. It's a curriculum in helping you become more like Christ. And Matthew has two sections he'll give you. He'll show you Jesus speaking. So this is like in the classroom where you're listening to what he says. Then he'll show you Jesus acting where you're supposed to learn by watching. He's out in the field doing his work. And you think about, you know, anything you want to learn and grow in. That's a good model. There's things you have to know and then there's things you have to do. And we're moving into a new section where we've just come off Jesus's sermon on mission, how his kingdom is going to advance in chapter 10. And then now chapter Chapter 11 and 12, he's going to demonstrate and show you who he is. This is all about his identity. So we heard him in the Sermon on the Mount, 5 through 7, then 8 and 9, you see him, and it's all about his work, what he came to do. He's the Savior. And then here, it's all about his person, his identity. Who is he? And so the next, you know, several weeks, we'll be thinking about Jesus's identity. And this will give us a good chance just to think about identity in general. So you think about the, the concept of identity and one of the, the strongest cultural forces that's being pushed into, or being kind of pushed into our world is identity politics. And the concept of identity has become something that's contested and confusing and complicated in areas that you might not have thought were complicated. And so we're thinking about, all right, identity, what does that mean? And one of our just basic cultural maxims is no one can define you for you. That you be you. You be true to you. Be true to yourself. You determine who you are, and it's an act of violence or oppression for anyone outside of you to speak or say anything about who you are. You be true to you. And if that's true, I don't know if it is, but if that's true, then there's nobody in the history of humanity that's had more violence committed against them than Jesus. Because there is nobody who more people have an opinion about who they are, and that opinion is so far disconnected from what he actually said he is. So, for example, when uh, I was going through seminary, I worked at this restaurant, and uh, one day we were interviewing a new employee to come on, and uh, his name was Luke. And the first time, the, like the way Luke introduced himself to me, uh, trying to get the job, is my name is Luke, and I'm a communist. And then he smiled, and he said, but not the Russian kind. And I laughed. I didn't know there was another kind. Well, I'm Ben, and I'm a Baptist preacher. We'll get along great. And so we, so, you know, we, he was a philosophy major, I was a philosophy major, and kind of part of what we did at the end of every day at the restaurant, we'd clear the restaurant out and I'd get the mop bucket and I'd scrub the floor and he'd come behind me and he'd he'd dry it and so we that was our opportunity for all types of philosophical discussions you know you work in a restaurant you get to see uh, every manner of humanity come through so one day we were mopping and just scrubbing the floor and uh, he just stops and he goes you know do you want to know what the problem with the church is <laughs> I think, not really, actually. <laughs> sure, I would love to hear the problem of the ch what the church is from somebody who's never once been. Tell me. And I said, the problem with you Christians is you're, you're so judgmental. You don't listen. If you would just do what Jesus said, do you know how much better the world would be? Actually, well, that's a pretty judgmental thing to say, but we'll set that aside. Um, but actually, I agree with you. I mean, I, you, I will not argue at all. I think if we would just do what Jesus said, you're right. I mean, the world 
would be so much better. I completely agree with you. Did you have anything in mind? Like, what were you thinking? He goes, you know, like the Sermon on the Mount. Turn the other cheek. Love your neighbor. If we just did what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, do you know how much better, like, our life would be? I said, I, I agree. I think you're exactly right. So I tell you what, tonight, like tomorrow, before you come into work, just spend some time, just read the Sermon on the Mount and actually want to hear, think about how can we implement some of those things like right here. And we'll start, me and you, we'll start it. We'll start the revolution. <laughs> and then the next day he came into work and uh, first thing he says is, Sermon on the Mount. Oh, no, that's awful. I had no idea. He's like, is he serious? Like, you can't look at a girl with lust. He wants to cut out your eyes. Is he serious? Nah, we'll try something else. <laughs> and I loved it because at least he had the integrity. See, the, the one day he thought he had this conception of who Jesus was and what he came to do. And then all it took was about 15 minutes of just reading what he actually said. And that conception was kind of blown up out of the water. But there's so many people who have an assumption. They assume something about who Jesus is, what he came to do, what he said. And it often is so contradictory to what he actually does say. And so what Matthew is doing, he's pushing us. He's pushing us towards Matthew 16, which is one of the most important sections where Jesus is going to ask the question to his disciples. And he asks it to every human. It's the, the eternal, ever relevant question. Who do you say that I am? It's the most important question you can ever be asked. Who do you say that I am? But what's interesting is before Matthew tells, before he pushes that question on us, who do you say that I am? Jesus wants to tell you who he says that he is. So he actually gives us his opinion of himself first. And we need to listen and learn so we can understand and know who he says he is. And one of the things he's going to say, and we'll see it here, he says, uh, blessed is the one who is not scandalized because of me. Blessed is the one who doesn't stumble. Blessed is the one who doesn't hear these words of mine and then say, oh, no way. <laughs> no way. You got to be kidding. You can't be serious. Blessed is the one who doesn't stumble at who I say I am. So we're going to go. Matthew's uh, uh, 11 and 12 is all about who does he say that he is. And we're going to see two things that can cause stumbling for different people in different places and different times. There's two aspects of his character that he wants us to know. He'll give us certain names, that he's the Messiah, he's the, the son of man, the son of David, he is the servant of the Lord. And what we're going to see him in these sections is that he's the one who's going to judge the living and the dead. He's come to judge. He will issue out judgment. And then he's also the one that's come to give rest, healing and rest. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He'll call anyone who is weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. And what this section is going to do is going to paint for us a complete portrait, a holistic portrait about who he really is. And we have to embrace both. We have to love both. He's the judge of heaven and earth. He's the giver of restoration and rest. And we'll need to hold both of those together. But before we get there, uh, Matthew is very interesting. He actually sets it up by giving us the, this case, kind of like a case study, in someone who's struggling Someone who's wrestling, someone who's doubting, someone who's disappointed, someone who's looking at their life and looking at Jesus, and they're in danger of stumbling over who he is. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, set it up with this case of, of John the Baptist. So starting uh, chapter 11, I think we'll have the verses on the screen. Well, we'll have the verse on the screen. We'll have the ESV up on the screen. I've been reading through this year the CSB, so that's what I'm reading, but that'll be there so you can coordinate 
When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and to preach in the towns. Now when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples and asked him, are you the one to come or should we look for another? And Jesus replied to them, go and report to John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. And blessed is the one who is not offended or scandalized or stumble because of me. So here what Matthew's doing is he's going to frame his teaching on the identity of Jesus with John the Baptist struggles to accept uh, who he thinks Jesus is or what Jesus is doing to come to terms with him. And this is important for us because think about it. If John can struggle with this, that means every single person in this room is in danger of struggling with this. And what John finds himself in, he's, he's depressed, he's discouraged, He's filled with doubts. And if John, if John can be filled with doubts, then every one of us can as well. And what we learn is we learn a tremendous amount about what it means to take our doubts, take our disappointments, take our discouragements to Jesus and how we can find help. So let's look at John. And what we're going to see is he actually does, he has three things that are wrong. And then he does two things that are right in this time of doubt and discouragement. But so think about his kind of situation. And it's worth that. I mean, John is one of the kind of the greatest figures in all of history. I mean, he's a remarkable man in every single way. You know, the last of the great uh, prophets, the immediate forerunner before Jesus, born in a miraculous way, this great prophet. You know, he made all these incredible statements to set up Jesus's ministry. You know, incredible statements like, I baptize you with water, but the one coming after me will baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He must increase. I must decrease. John rallied this incredible following and was leading this really dynamic, remarkable ministry out in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Messiah, had dedicated his whole life to the preparation to make things ready so when when the Messiah uh, came, he would do all the things that they had hoped and that they had expected. And then if you remember, he confronts uh, Herod Antipas and he is taking an unlawful wife, confronts him publicly, gets thrown in prison. At the time, we're not quite sure how long he's been in prison, probably been in there six months. He, maybe he does know, I was going to say he doesn't know, maybe he does know, but his, uh, he will be executed, beheaded very soon. And so here he is, he finds himself at the very end of his life and looking back and he's in prison and he finds himself discouraged. And looking like, did everything I give myself to was all of my life, you know, is this it? Is this the end? You know, and just kind of hear the heartache in the question. We'll just kind of camp out on that question. Are you the one to come or should we look for another? You know, are you the one? My whole life was dedicated to preparing for and serving and sacrificing for the one. And I thought you were the one. Are you really the one? You just hear the disappointment and hear the doubts. And so let's think about him. Let's think about the things that he got wrong first. Notice uh, what's causing his difficulty is the first thing is that his expectations are wrong. You know, why does he ask that question? Notice what fuels it. It says he hears a report of what the Christ is doing, what he's doing. 
And that calls them to say, wait a second, are you really the one? Like I hear and I've seen what you're doing and what you're doing, what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing is not matching what I'm expecting. I was expecting you to do something else. And maybe prison had been terrible. Maybe he had become sick. You know, the darkness, the doubt, it had all come on him. But I wonder if now John has just fallen victim to the common misconception of what they thought the Messiah was actually going to do when he came. You know, there's a disconnect between what he sees Jesus doing and what he expected him to do. And you just wonder, what did he hear? What was the report? Maybe he heard that he's staying in Galilee. Jesus hadn't come down to Jerusalem yet. He's staying in Galilee. He's teaching all these people. He's, he's healing sick mother-in-laws, and he's doing these things for kind of the, the, the country folks. And maybe John's wrestling, like, why doesn't he come to Jerusalem? Why is he not here? Why is he not rallying and gathering his army? Why doesn't he go to Qumran and get the community that have been waiting for the, 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 the son of light to come? Why is he staying there? Why is he allowing? me, his servant, his faithful servant who dedicated his whole life to preparing the way for him to languish here in prison. Am I really going to die this way? Is this how it's going to end? Why? And you just think, you know, how many people um, stumble when they, you know, how many people are not Christians or stumble because they look out in the world and say, wait a second, if Jesus really was who he said he was, why is the world this way? They have certain expectations. Why hasn't the world been put right? So maybe he's looking out on the world. Or maybe he's just looking at his own life. So if he really was who he said he was, why is my life happening this way? It's not panning out in the way that I had hoped or the way that I would thought. And so he can be scandalized or he can stumble over false expectations. And it's worth thinking about. In times of doubt, in times of discouragement, in times of disappointment, what if that's fueled by false expectations? Where do your expectations come from? You know, what Jesus is doing, telling to John, in essence, is the same thing God told Adam. Remember when Adam was hiding and God asked him, why is he hiding? He says, because I was naked, I was hiding from him. He said, who told you that? Jesus said, like, who told you? You had these expectations that the Messiah was supposed to do this thing. Who told you that? Where do they come from? What's the origin and the source of those expectations? How much of our struggles come from false expectations. We had a little saying in our house that kind of became a maxim for a while, and it was uh, the saying, uh, this is not fun. And Cynthia just walked in and she's smiling. Because uh, Cynthia taught second grade and she was a second grade teacher and at her school it was kind of this kind of very posh uh, private school. And so it created just unique challenges. And uh, they were doing a second grade field trip. I don't know, it was like to the zoo or like a theme park or something. And they needed parents to come chaperone. And the expectation for the parents to chaperone is that you chaperone. So you come and they were going to assign maybe three or four children and you were responsible for those children. And one of the moms came and she was just kind of decked out in a certain way where instantly, you know, all right, this trip to the zoo, <laughs> this is, she's going to have a long day. And I don't know what the expectations were. I think she was thinking it would just like be her and her daughter, or maybe just her. She was going to get a free ticket to like the theme park and get to go ride, ride and play, but was not expecting to be responsible for any children. And then at the end of the day, kind of stormed in Mrs. Bailey's class and was very upset and kind of stomped as she said, uh, I had no idea I'd be responsible to watch those kids. This was not fun. 
and then just stormed out of the room. <laughs> and Cynthia, and you know how kind and gracious she is, and she's just trying to be like, I'm sorry it wasn't fun. Um, why in the world did you think it was supposed to be fun? Your job was to chaperone the children. Actually, these false expectations can, in one sense, they can poison everything. And I, it's so, uh, it's almost shameful how we can slip into the same mentality. I find myself just by reflex, like when my kids are complaining about how, you know, oh, I don't want to go to school or I don't want to go do these piano lessons. It's not going to be fun. I'm like, oh, yeah, it'll be fun. And I just I want to stop myself. Like, no, it's not going to be fun. Like you doing your math homework is not going to be fun, but you have to sit down and you have to do it because you're going to become a better man and a better woman this way. But why do we think it has to be fun? And so much of our disappointments are fueled by false expectations. And you just look at John and say, all right, what were the expectations? And in some sense, he had good reason. I mean, his life was very difficult at this moment. His expectations were wrong. But another thing, this is fascinating, his interpretations were wrong. Notice how Jesus responds to him. And I love this about Jesus. I want to do a study one day of how he answers questions. Because he almost never answers a question with an answer always says something else. And so they come and John's disciples says, are you the one to come or should we look for another? And notice what Jesus does. Go and tell John what you see and hear. And then he quotes the Old Testament to him. He quotes Isaiah 35 and 61 to him. These are some of the most popular passages. Like, I wonder what John thought when he heard that. And said, well, what did he say? When, when we asked, are you the one? Did he say, yes, I really am. I know it might not look like it now, but let me explain to you the plan. Let me give you the, let me, let me chart out the next three years and tell you how it's going to work out. And then there's going to be this amazing thing where I'm going to rise from the dead and the spirit's going to pour out. Let, let me actually walk you through the whole plan and process. He doesn't tell them any of that. He quotes him the Old Testament. Do you know what John knew? He knew Isaiah. He knew it really well. What do you think Jesus is doing by reminding him of those passages? He's saying, no, wait, you're, you're actually not interpreting the text you know right. You know, he's sending him back to something he should already know. So you know this. You know these things. In times of doubt and disappointment, one of the most helpful things we can do is just remember the things we know. No, wait, what is it that we actually know we know that God is this way. We know that sin works this way. What do we know? Notice what he tells them. Isaiah 35, then 61, he strings them together and say, here's the thing. The, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news, preach to them. He's shifting to 61. Do you know what the next line and after the poor have good news, preach to them? Jesus stops. Do you know what the next line is? He proclaims liberty to the captives. He sets the captives free. And I wonder why does, why does Jesus not say he's doing that? It's just interesting. He's going to remind John, don't think you're not, you're not interpreting these things right. You actually see me. These are the things that I'm doing. Remember what it is you know. And he gives them Old Testament truth. He says, look, go back. Go back to this place. Often doubts and disappointments come just because we've forgotten what we know. 
So his interpretation is wrong, but then his application is wrong to himself and to what he sees. His application is wrong. You know, I think John hadn't really realized or reckoned with his own greatest need. I mean, I wonder how he responded when they said, look, he said, this is what is happening. The blind receive their sight, the lame are walking, the poor have the gospel preached to them. I wonder what he thought. I mean, I wonder if he was convicted and maybe said, okay, okay, all good things, all good things. Not what I was hoping for. I was hoping, like, what, why didn't he say something like, um, he's, 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 He's ending war. He's going to end poverty. He's going to crush the oppressors. He's going to raise up our nation. Why not these things? Why this? And I just wonder if he's not applying it right. He hasn't realized the true significance and glory of what was actually happening. And then he hadn't actually realized the true significance and glory of what he had actually accomplished himself. You know, he's discouraged. He's doubtful. He feels like I'm a failure. I'm languishing in prison. I have failed. I have failed. And then notice what Jesus says to the crowd. We didn't read it, but then Jesus goes on and say, what did you go out to, when you went to see John, what did you see? You know, did you go out to see a, a king? No, you went to see a prophet. He says, I tell you, there is no one who's been born of a woman greater than John the Baptist. I don't know if you've ever been complimented by somebody you admire, but could you imagine hearing that compliment? Like, there is no one who's been born of a woman. Think, right, well, that puts, that's a pretty broad category. <laughs> Nobody born of a woman who's greater than John. And here at that moment of utter disappointment, total disillusionment, where he feels like a total failure, he hears Jesus, you haven't failed. You're not applying these things right. Your job was to prepare the way, and you have. You have done what you were called to do, and that's how you define success in this kingdom. It's not what you feel or what you see. He wasn't applying these things right. So what we find is that John has to be reoriented because Jesus is saying, no, I'm actually doing the most important thing that can be done. Your expectations are off, but what I'm, there's nothing more important than what I'm doing is I'm reconciling and drawing people back to, into a living relationship with their living Lord. Nothing more important. So in times of doubt, depression, disorientation, discouragement, you know, these are things that can cause it. Our expectations can be wrong. Maybe we're not, we're not seeing ourselves clearly like we should. But notice John does two things that are really helpful that at any stage and any season, this is what we should do. Notice the first place, where does he go with his doubts? Where does he go with his disappointments? Where does he go with his discouragements? He goes straight to Jesus. He goes straight to him. He went to the right person. So in times like that, don't turn away from him. Don't run from him, but go to him. Go to his word. Go to his teaching. Go to him. Go see him in action. Hear his voice. Ask him to help you understand who he is and what he came to do. We go to him. He went to the right person. But then notice, he asked the right question. Are you the one? Or should we look for another? Are you the one? He understood that his heart is so oriented that he will always be searching for the one. Who is the one? The one that's going to bring judgment and, and set things to right and the one who can bring rest. The one who can stand and say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The one who gives rest to our souls. 
Like Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in him. He understands that his heart is on a quest to find rest. And if Jesus isn't the one, there's somebody else. There's another one coming that I can look to that can bring that rest. So in all of our doubts, all of our disappointments, all of our discouragements, one of the things that makes them worse is we look for the one in all of the wrong places. Maybe we look to it in material things and just, all right, this next thing, if I can just get this next thing, then a sense of settledness, if I can just get this next thing, or maybe in relationships and relational uh, triumphs, if I can just get this next person, or maybe it's goals and achievements, just the next accomplishment and hit the next metric, or maybe it's the next experience, if I can just find the next, are you the one, or will I look, or will we look for another? You know, I did my PhD on Martin Lloyd-Jones, and Part of it was I listened to every sermon that they had that he preached, and you would think a lot of them stuck, but there was only a handful that actually stuck. And uh, one of them that just stuck is a sermon he preached on this phrase, uh, are you the one to come or shall we look for another? And he preached it in the late 1940s, early 1950s in the aftermath of World War II. And he uses that phrase where John has come face to face with Jesus and he has this opportunity to know that all of the, the longings of my hearts can be satisfied in this person right now. And he just cries out in the sermon. He says, John, don't turn away from him. Don't turn. You stand face to face to Jesus. Don't turn from him. And when I was listening to the sermon this week, I thought it was really interesting because he has this kind of side comment where he says that uh, the thing that he's probably critiqued the most in his preaching is that he doesn't address the relevant events that are happening in the world. And so he was, he's critiqued because he's not addressing apartheid in South Africa, or he's not speaking about uh, unilateral disarmament among the nations, and he's not speaking about the healthcare crisis and the transition to the National Health Service. He's not talking about the, any of those things. What he's talking about is the fundamental, most important reality of every heart is asking, are you the one to come or should we look for another? And I was listening to that sermon. It just struck me because I thought, you know what? If he had talked about all of those things, that sermon wouldn't have any meaning 70 years from now when I'm listening to it now. But it's still potent. It's still powerful. It still resonates because he's actually addressing the most important reality and fundamental question that every person is asking. Are you the one to come or should we look for another? You know, you need, you know, we come face to face and ask him, are you the one? All my life I've been searching for something. And what Jesus has called to John in that moment is, John, in this moment of disillusionment, disappointment, discouragement, do you trust me? Do you trust me? And I think in any times of disappointment, doubt, discouragement, one of the fundamental questions is go to Jesus and hear him say, do you trust me? And I wonder if Jesus might not have said, if they would have talked face-to-face, they should remember, John, you boldly proclaimed, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But now you have to know that I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of John. And it's not until you rest and trust in that will you ever be free from your doubts, your disappointments, and your discouragements. You know, in this very chapter, Jesus is going to issue the summons, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden. But as we come, we have to come knowing that, behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away not just the sins of the the abstract world. He takes away the sins of us, our sins. 
And until we come face to face with him and cry out to him and repent of those sins and ask him to forgive us of those, we will never find rest. So in one thing we do each week is we take communion every week, and this is our weekly reminder of the one place that forgiveness and rest can be found. So if you come this morning, uh, let's remind ourselves that this is where restoration, redemption, renewal, forgiveness can be found. So let's pray, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who in your great mercy you have promised us the forgiveness and the removal of our sins to all those who sincerely repent and turn to you. So we come to you now. We ask that you have mercy on us. We thank you for sending your son, that you love the world, that you sent your only son, that if we believe in him, we won't perish, but we'll have everlasting life. And that life comes from coming to the one. So we come to you now thanking you for this great gift. Amen. So on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this bread symbolizes my body broken for you. And then he took the cup. He said, this cup represents my blood that's shed for the forgiveness of sins. So now let's take a moment and pray and just ask the Lord to make these things real in our life. And maybe you come in here this morning and, you know, there are many times in John's life where he was stable, he was strong, he was bold, he was courageous. You know, his life was overflowing. And maybe you come that way this morning where you feel, you feel strong, you feel stable, you feel encouraged. Ask the Lord to help you to learn in those good times to learn gratitude, learn generosity, learn humility. Ask the God to make you aware of the temptation to be presumptuous or to feel superior or to have undue pride. Or maybe you come this morning and you can fully sympathize and empathize with John. You come empty, filled with doubts, filled with disappointments and discouragements. Ask God to help you, like John, help you to learn hope, learn courage, learn patience. Ask God to make you alert to the temptations of despair and complaining and covetousness. Oh Lord, we commit ourselves to you. We thank you for the, the testimony that we have of your faithful servant, John, and how he dealt with his doubts and disappointments. So we ask that you help us to do the same in all of ours. This we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. And now may the love of a dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this week, forever, and always. Amen. Go in peace.